Well, this afternoon we're going to be continuing in our Hebrews series. We're going to be in Hebrews, uh, continuing in Hebrews chapter 10 here in our next section and how Jesus is the greater sacrifice. Jesus is the greater and not only greater sacrifice, but final and only sufficient sacrifice. This section began in chapter 9, verse 1, and goes through verse 18. But for the sake of, for the sake of context, we're going to read the entirety of chapter 1 that we're going to be in verses 5 through 10 today of chapter 10. So let us give attention to God's Word. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise they, otherwise would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. By that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest daily stands at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit bears witness for us, To us, for after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them, after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is no forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sins. That's the end of the section. Let's pray. Our Father, Great and marvelous you are. Most wonderful. Most great. The one who created the heavens and the earth and all that we see and all that and all that we don't see. And you being the creator, us being the creature. It is a marvel to me that you have made yourself known to us. Our Father, through this word, through the words that you have given throughout the ages. And as we have just read your holy word, we pray that you would help us to receive it as it is, your word, your voice to us. We ask, O Father, that you would As we now study this passage, that is your word. As we look into it, that you would make clear to us your truth. And that you would apply it to each of our hearts as you have designed it and as each of us need. That your spirit would go and do your work in each of us. That you would increase and strengthen our faith. By the work of your spirit. We pray, our Father, for this, for this preacher, a fellow needy sinner saved by grace, 
that you would guide him, that he might true be true to what your truth says, that you might chain him to the word, that he might freely declare your truth, such that what he declares is your word. And so that it would be clear, that it would be accurate, and that it would be understandable. And these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If we remember, as we've been walking through the book of Hebrews for these last, I don't remember how many months, uh, we're seeing this idea that Jesus is the greater than. He's the final revelation of God, the great revelation of God. He is greater than angels. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than the priesthood. And now we see that he, we've been seeing that he is the greater and final and sufficient sacrifice. Last time in the first part of chapter 10, we saw how we saw what we call the shadowy nature of the law. That is the Old Covenant, the law given at Sinai, all the various different sacrificial systems, even the various different civil and judicial laws were all shadows of something greater that is to come. While there's the abiding moral law that's in there that we call the Ten Commandments, there's even elements of them that are tied to the shadowy nature. But yet... The substance of them continues. We see that the, this old covenant is a shadow or a sketch. On a sunny day, which, you know, we don't get a whole lot of those here. But on a sunny day, if, we're going to go, if I was to go outside and a shadow were to be cast uh, in the right angle, depending on which direction I'm facing, one could look on the ground and see a shadow of me. Most likely, it wouldn't, it wouldn't look a whole lot like me. It would either be a really short me or a really long me. Uh, and even if it was proportional, you probably wouldn't be able to see much detail. Well, that's what the law does. It's foreshadowing something to come. Or it's a sketch, just as when a painter uh, begins a, a uh, starts with a blank canvas, oftentimes they will uh, take a pencil and very faintly sketch out the shapes of the things that are going to be painted, but they don't go into much detail. Or if you've ever watched uh, the master Bob Ross do his painting, you've seen he just put, starts putting colors on the, screen, uh, on the canvas and uh, then puts a little there, and the next thing you know, he's making happy trees. But it starts off with just that uh, that that sketch, that outline, that's not clear. But once that, uh, but once the fullness comes, that shadow or that sketch has served its purpose, and it's no longer in in uh, in focus. We saw that those continual sacrifices were really of no effect for the purpose of removing sins. They served as a reminder of sin. They were tied. Uh, to the covenant at Sinai, the Mosaic covenant, which fundamentally says this, do this and live for life in the land. In order to live in the land, they had to do that so they could live. But we are now under a new covenant, one that has been promised since the garden in which it is not do this and live, but it is someone else did that so we could live. The covenant of grace. God has given to us in Christ Jesus. And his sacrifice is that which we might say cut the covenant, is that which brought the covenant into time and space. For the blood of bulls and goats cannot nor could not remove sin. For it was not a bull or a goat or any other animal that rebelled in the garden. Rather, it was the one that God created as the vice regent of creation. Man rebelled in the garden. We rebelled in the garden in Adam. While our rebellion affected, affected and still affects all of creation, because being the vice regents, there is not anything else in creation that can remove sin. A man sinned, a man must undo it. And that man, Jesus Christ, did that. 
And we're going to be seeing that in greater detail today. He opens up after on those on those thoughts. He opens up now in verse five, quoting Jesus, saying that consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, and then what he said was sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me and burnt offering and sin offerings. You have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as is written of me in the scroll of the book. Now, one thing you will find, you if you look for the Gospels, look through the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and look for Jesus saying these words, you're not going to find it. And so we can say, how in the world can we say Jesus said this coming into the world? Well, this is actually from a psalm. This is Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8. Um, it's a, in some respects, it's a paraphrase. But Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8, and we'll turn there just so we can hear the, um, what we might call the source material. It says, In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open, open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book as it is written of me. I delight to do your will. Oh my God, your law is written in my heart. So when he, which is the way it reads in the original language, when he came into the world, but who have we been speaking of who came into the world? Christ. Christ is the one who came into the world to offer the sacrifice. When he came into the world, it's referring to Christ. And this psalm that is quoted is now being clearly told this is a prophetic word declaring the word of Christ. That when it was written, while David may have been the one who uttered it, who wrote it, it was not ultimately speaking of David, but it was speaking of Christ, as is the entirety of the law, the prophets, and the writings. For the law, the prophets, and the writings all testify of Christ, all testify of someone who is greater that is coming. And so this is looking forward to Christ. And so thus, being the words of Christ, yes, he said this. We may very well have what we call a divine dialogue here. Jesus Christ being fully God, being united to the human nature such that he is fully God and fully man in which we have the internal mind of Christ in his mission. That he has come to do the will of God. More on that in a little bit. R. Kent Hughes says of this, Our pre-incarnate Savior quoted Psalm 40 as being prophetic of his thoughts at human birth. And he continues to say, what a marvelous thing. And so while David penned this psalm, here we have what we might say, is an inspired and inerrant commentary on Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8. Because of the fact the Spirit inspired this. We might even say that this is the Holy Spirit's commentary on Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8. Because he inspired the writing of it. So he applies this to Christ. So we see that in the mind of God, in the revelation of this to David... We see that he's ultimately speaking of the coming of Christ into the world. And what does this speak of? What does this psalm, as applied in the book of Hebrews, speak of? It speaks of the, it speaks of the insufficiency of the previous sacrifices, as has already been stated in the previous verses. It asserts this, all the sacrifices that a man or a woman could offer cannot undo the failure to render to God that which he requires. What does God require of man? He requires obedience. He requires obedience to his will as he has revealed it and nothing more. I'm nothing less. He requires obedience. Even in the Old Testament, when one, out, when one outright sinned against God with intentionality, there was no sacrifice that could be offered for the, te for the temporal judgment because they only dealt with 
what we would call, as we saw some messages ago, the unintentional sins. David himself had to bear the brunt of his series of very intentional, malicious sins that he carried out in order to gain Bathsheba. This passage, actually, when I read it, the first time I read it some time ago, as in years ago, before I started even started preaching, it reminded me of uh, a story in the book of Samuel, 1 Samuel. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, verses 22 through 23, a little background to what's said here is God, through the prophet Samuel, had commanded Saul to go and lay waste to the Amalekites to go and leave nothing and to take nothing. The king and the queen were to die. No one was to be left. Not any of the animals or the livestock were to be left. It was judgment against the Amalekites. Then the story, Saul decides to leave the king alive and decides to take the sheep and the goats And when Samuel gets there, there's an interesting, kind of an interesting play on words. He comes in and says, what is this bleeding of of sheep sheep and of goats that I'm hearing? Why am I hearing bah? Because he was to take them. He said, well, I thought I would take them and offer them as a sacrifice to the Lord. And Samuel said, you were commanded to do something. And this is how he responded to him. Samuel said to Saul, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. And it was shortly thereafter that David was anointed king. In secret. So what is it that is required by God of people? But that is obedience. There's a little song, I think it was written in the 70s, maybe the 80s, based on Micah chapter 6, 8. It says, He has shown thee, O man, what God requires of you, but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God. That's a summary of God's law. That's what God requires of man. And here it is. We see that what God has prepared, what, the, what has been prepared in the, divine, in the divine, in God's mind and in the plan of God among the tri- members of the Trinity of what was required and of what would occur. What is required by God is obedience. And he says, first of all, what is it that he has prepared? He has prepared a body for him. Now, you may have heard when we quoted from uh, the psalm, Psalm, uh, when we read Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8, in the Hebrew text, it reads, um, ear, you've given me an ear. But Hebrews actually uses an ancient Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures, known as the Septuagint, which you've heard that before. But here it says, in there, it says body. Now, this is, some might say, well, here we have a contradiction. We have something that shows the Bible is not inspired. R. Kent Hughes says of this, the Greek paraphrase of it is that Christ and the author quoted in Hebrews is a body you have prepared for me. This may be because the Greek translator thought the creation of ears is part of fashioning a whole human body. That's one way of speaking of it. For if God is to, for God does not have a body, but he took on flesh, and thus he had an ear. And this is what the second person of the Trinity, the one that the Gospel of John calls the Word of God, the one who we know as incarnate in the person of Jesus Christ, this is what the second of person of the Trinity has when coming into the world. This is a restatement of what we have in John chapter 1, 
when he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This one was in the beginning with God, and all things that have come into being have come into being through him. There's not one thing that exists that does not exist because he may, that doesn't, that exists without his making it. Speaking of this word. And then it says about 10 verses later, and the word became flesh. That's John chapter 1, verse 14. You see, we're seeing here that idea of the word becoming flesh. This is speaking of the union of the divine nature to the human nature, such that there's not some sort of a new hybrid being, but one who is fully God and fully man without being divided and without being confused. God becoming flesh, a body that has been prepared for him. And again, He restates in this that sacrifices and offerings you have not required after stating that. We go back to Psalm chapter 40, verses 6 through 8, and we see what we have in Hebrews is kind of a shortened version of it. But in Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8, it says more. It says that of the one... Of the one who is speaking in the psalm, he is spoken of in the scriptures. Before he gets on to this language about the will of God. Where he says, "Then I in verse 7, Then I said, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. So once again, the psalmist says, The scriptures speak of me. And we have a clear, even in the language of the old, even in the language of the Old Testament, there's very different, really, it's difficult to read it any other way than speaking of someone other than David himself, other than Christ himself, to being just speaking of David. But now we see what he has come to do with regards to the body that has been prepared for him. What does he say? Behold, I have come to do your will. We see that he delights to do the will of God as it is written in Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8. When we think of doing his will, we think a lot about uh, what does that mean when we say what is God's will? Frequently at... at, uh, the forefront of many people's minds is what is God's will for me in this particular circumstance? It's God's will that I do this or do that. And unless God were to come and say, this is what you must do, we're actually told to follow what the main will we're called to follow is what we have written in the word. Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 29 says, the secret things belong to me, God saying. But to you is what is revealed. And while this, no doubt, might include what we call the eternal purpose and design of God's will, that is what we, the will of God that is, is only known to himself, what we call his secret will, what he says, this shall happen and it happens, but it's not been revealed to us. The only revelation we have of God there's two revelations of God. There's the revelation of himself in, cre- in, in creation, which is just enough to condemn us. And then there's the revelation of God in the scriptures. There's no other revelation of God. But in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, it speaks of God's will in terms of his eternal purpose. When it says, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works out all things according to the counsel of his will, according to his purpose. But I would argue that the will, as what we have revealed here and in comparison with what's in Psalm 40 verses 6 through 8, is speaking a bit more specifically. Speaking of something more known, 
something more that we can know. That is, he has come as one who delights to do the will of God. And that he defines as God's will in his heart. He says of that, and back in Psalm 40, he says, to do what is written in your scriptures, that is to do the law of God, to do what God requires. So thus, what we could say is it is speaking of him perfectly, personally, and perpetually obeying God's law in this body that has been prepared for him. Him personally, perfectly, and perpetually obeying God's law in the person of Jesus Christ. This is what God requires of his people, that we do his will. That is to follow his law in personal, perfect, and perpetual obedience. It is not sacrifice or offering that he requires, but it is obedience. Nor is he, does he require of people simply an occasional or general obedience. Basically saying, yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm generally pretty good. I've done more good than I have evil. I'm not as bad as that guy over there, so I guess I'm doing pretty good. No, that's not the obedience and doing of God's will that he's speaking of. And sorry if I pointed over your way, it just happened my left hand was over there. I wasn't speaking to you all in particular. (laughs) But no, it requires absolute, perfect, perpetual, and personal obedience. The three P's. It's not a matter of scales of the good outweighing the bad. But rather, it is that of never having any bad. And we failed that in the garden. We failed that in the garden in Adam. And while we could read this as some commentaries that I read on this, we can get out of this that, yes, we should be an obedient people who don't use sacrifice and grand gestures as a cover for our own lack of obedience. That is, to use this primarily, yes, I should, I should focus on obeying and not giving offering sacrifices to cover up my lack of obedience. There's an element where that's true for the Christian, but it's a secondary idea to the main idea. In fact, without that primary idea that there needs to be perfect, perpetual, and personal obedience, it means nothing. Someone has to obey in our stead. Someone has to obey when we could, since we failed to do so. Even obedience is not sufficient if it's not perfect and perpetual and personal. So while there's truth to the song from the late 70s, which is by a singer that I really, really like and enjoy listening to, Keith Green, when he says to obey is better than sacrifice, I don't need your money, I want your life. It goes far beyond simply a pietistic notion of just how we can do better and try harder. As we're going to see in a little bit. But we see, first of all, it's his, it, is, it is his delight to do the will of God from the psalm. It is, for, it is but being God to delight with absolute perfection on his own will. God delights in his own perfections. If we were delight in lesser perfections, he would cease being God. If one is absolutely perfect, for one to esteem one esteem something above perfect those perfections would be to say there is that I am not then perfect. God delights in His own will; He delights in who He is. For there is nothing greater in which can be delighted. Just as we are called to enjoy God and to delight in Him, but now in union with the human nature in the person that we know is Jesus Christ, that delight 
to carry out the will of God personally and perfectly and perpetually will be carried out. Remember last week we read from Romans chapter 5 and we saw that there's two Adams, one who failed and one who succeeded, one through whom death, was, death came and one through whom life came. It's which, under which, by which Adam are we represented? And so Christ, in his life, perfectly carried out God's will, perfectly did all that which was required in him, perfectly fulfilled God's law, never sinned, never once sinned, always obeyed, always did, never did that which he was forbidden to do, and always did that which he was required to do. He delighted and in and did God's will. And his delight was one of perfect delight, a perfect delight in that which is true to God's nature. And so we see him using this psalm for this purpose. But now in verses 8 and 9 and 10, he gives us what we might say a commentary on that psalm. It's stated in the psalm twice that sacrifices and burnt offerings are not sufficient, just as we saw previously. The burnt offerings, the sin offerings, none of them were sufficient. Again, they were not what God required as they could not truly remove sin. They but showed what was to come, a sketch, a foreshadowing, a metaphor, all different ways of kind of speaking the same thing. Being insufficient, they had to go. As it says later on in verse, 10, in verse 9, when he fulfilled God's will, the old was done away with. But they went. Nor were they put away just to have an enhanced version of the same type of repetitive sacrifices. That's not what God Required. That is one of the errors that Martin Luther encountered in the Roman Catholicism of his day that is still present in it. Is that you simply have a, an enhanced version of the Old Testament sacrifices. Of repetitive sacrifices, of re-offering over and over and over again. When Hebrews makes clear Christ did it once for all, if the, if the, if the repetitive sacrifices were necessary, he would still be being sacrificed. But he's not continuing to be sacrificed. Nor is the hope of, nor is the hope of the world that there's going to be a day in which the temple is rebuilt and all those sacrifices start over again. Hebrews says that's done. They serve their purpose. Yes, there is a new Jerusalem coming. Yes, there is a new temple coming. But that new Jerusalem and new temple cannot be contained by an area of land in this world. That new Jerusalem, that new temple is the people of God itself. Those who are in Christ Jesus. Whether it was before he died and rose again or after. He's come to do God's will. In doing his will, he makes moot the sacrificial system and by extension, the entirety of the old covenant. It's done. It's moot. And by that will, we have been sanctified. By what will? By the will that Jesus did. By his obedience, we have been sanctified. If we are in Christ by faith, he has set us apart to himself. He has made us holy. That's what the word sanctify means. He's made us holy. He's made us righteous before God. He's given us right standing before him. He's, given, he's qualified us to stand in God's presence. Yes, we are called to obey 
And one who refuses to obey, one who refuses to express gratitude to God for his gift and seeking to obey, I have questions about their relationship with Christ. Yet, it is by the obedience of Christ and not by our obedience that we are sanctified. If we are in Christ. You see, that obedience he carried out made effective the offering of his body that he offered once and for all. If Jesus had failed, if he had given in to the temptation, whether it would be in the desert or the temptation to find or the temptation there in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he said, if there's another way we can do this, if he had failed, to fulfill, if he had failed, if he had sinned, his death would have just been another death. It would have been nothing else. You see, Jesus' death is not an unfortunate martyrdom. Jesus' death is God's design and plan to redeem a people unto himself. And he did so and was made effective because he obeyed. And this is the foundation and bulwark of the faith of the church and of our own faith. Without this, what do we have? That is why traditions that pose as Christianity that say it doesn't matter whether really Jesus was born from a virgin or that he died and rose again. That doesn't matter. What just matters is what we learn from him. That's something, but it's not Christian. Or if we simply turn Jesus and we accept that he lived and died for us, but we focus on simply Jesus being one after whom we are to model, we're we're missing the point. Or if we look at Jesus' work as being something that he did, but he didn't, but he leaves it for us to complete it. That he died so that he could create a people who would make the, who would finish his work by making the world a perfect place. We've missed the point. Christ's sacrifice is superior because it was not an animal sacrifice, but the death of one of the race that rebelled in the garden. But it was also perfect because it was a sacrifice of one who was not tainted at all in any way, shape, or form by sin. Even the animal sacrifices were tainted by sin because they were affected by our own rebellion. All of creation has been affected by the rebellion of man because stuff flows downstream. It's a sacrifice of one who truly obeyed God's will perfectly, personally, and perpetually. So we see that obeying God's will with perfection, he brought an end to the entire sacrificial system and thus is the greater sacrifice. By that one single offering, there is nothing more for us to be perfected other than his work. His work is sufficient. And by his death, our sin is removed from us. A theological term for that is expiated, if you wish to know. Expiated. And God's anger was then turned from us toward our sin upon Christ Jesus. The theological term for that is propitiated. God's wrath was placed upon Christ because our sin was removed from us and placed upon him. And by his obedience, we are counted as having been obeyed. We have been sanctified, made holy once and for all by the holy acts of Jesus. You see, in, his, in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, we don't just have a clean slate as in zero sin. That's not enough. That's what Adam had. What we need is not only a clean slate, is we need obedience too. And Jesus obeyed on our behalf. And his obedience, his righteousness, is counted as our own. Martin Luther said of this, what we, that's what we call justification. 
Martin Luther said of this, this is the doctrine upon which the church stands or falls. If we don't have this, we don't have the gospel. Martin Luther, the Luther of the 1500s. It is only from that foundation can any sense of obedience, obedience that we are obligated to do as a matter of thanksgiving, but it is only from that that, that foundation that any of that can flow. We have been freed from needing to make ourselves right so we can get on to the business of loving God and loving our neighbor from the life that he has given us. We have been freed to love our neighbor. You see, we do not do good works as Christians from the life God has given us, not to get life, but because he's given us life. We do not seek to do good works because God needs them from us. He needs nothing from us. We do them because our neighbor needs them. Our neighbor needs them. Christianity is not about The Christian ethic is not about the pursuit of self-interest because Christ did not pursue his self-interest. He pursued our interest in his life and his death. Charles Spurgeon says several things on these removals of the former things when he says that the former things have been removed or the first things were removed. He says, when the Son of God is born into the world, there's an end of all types by which he was formerly prefigured. All those previous sacrifices, all those things that testified of him, they're gone. They're done. They may be carried out, but they're meaningless. They don't have any more warrant from God. And that the removal of these things was wholesale. Not just some of them, not just part of them, but the whole lot. It's done. Now in Christ we have a new people composed of Jew and Gentile and every other category of people under that. Every tongue, tribe, nation, and people. So we need to see that the new covenant isn't just a more mature version of the old covenant. It's a new covenant of a different nature. The old was a shadow and incomplete. The old was temporal. It was about life in the land. It was about this life. But it testified of something greater and was rooted in works. In the new, we had the fulfillment, which now is at the end of the book. We now see it was not about having a lasting city here, but rather about a city which is to come. And the new is... The fulfillment and the new is eternal and based entirely upon grace. Entirely upon grace. It all comes from God's grace, which is based upon his free work on our behalf, though we deserve it not. And so God's will is complete on our behalf. I mentioned earlier, we often obsess about God's will for us. That is his secret will to which we are not privy. Oftentimes, you know, young men and women are concerned about who they wish to, who they want to marry. Rightfully so. Marriage is a good thing. We often will say, I want to get the one. And I have to know who the specific one is. I had a seminary and professor who poked a hole, a uh, professor in seminary who poked a hole in that. He said, if there's just, there's the one. If you miss it, guess what? You've messed up everyone for, for the rest of the world now. Rather, the one is the one whom God has placed in our life. Whom God has given us. But rather, God's revealed will is that which we must be concerned with. And that revealed will that we know is in his scriptures. His law is found in the Ten Commandments. And as we learned in our Ten Commandments series, it's not just those things on the surface that we see. That's the prime example of obedience. But everything that leads up to violation of that is required. And also there are 
positive requirements like the requirement of you shall not steal is not just a matter of not taking that which is not yours, but it is also a matter of when God is required that we give to something, we must give. And if we don't give, we are stealing. And Christ fulfilled that will on our behalf. He did all that so that now from life we can begin to do that. We can begin to have a little progress in that regard. And one day there's coming a day when all that disobedience will finally be gone. And all remnants of sin will be gone when he returns for us. Sin will always be present in this world. And I fear that among many Christians today, there's an over-realization of expectation of um, there being some monumental event that's going to make history perfect, usually tied to public figures. That's not until Christ returns. But we are called to give sacrificially, well, we are called to give sacrificially of our lives, and of our resources, and of our time. We're called to present ourselves a living sacrifice. These are matters from the standpoint of having life and having friendly relations with God, and not from the standpoint of seeking to gain or elicit favor from God. Christ did that for us. We also need to understand that our sacrifices of thanksgiving are those of joyful obedience because Jesus obeyed for us. And any practice or theology that demands that we need to add to the sacrifice of Christ or to replace it or that it was not sufficient is once for all or that it needs to be perpetually re-offered. We must detest such practices. We must reject such practices. We must also resist the tendency within our own hearts to do that. Our, we, our resting heartbeat is that of wanting to do this of wanting to add to that. We must resist that. Consider pilgrimages. My Christianity is complete whether or not I ever visit Israel. Now, visiting Israel is fine. It's good. I I would love to visit there and, and see things over there. But my Christianity is complete whether or not I ever go to Israel or whether or not I ever go to Wittenberg in Germany, where Martin Luther did the 95 Theses. My Christianity is complete because Christ completed it. Nor chasing after relics, chasing after various different, um, various different things that we might say are tied to the time of Christ. It was said in Spain in the 1500s, that there were claims to, the, to not only the all 12 apostles being buried in Spain, but there were actually 18 out of 12 buried in Spain. And people would go and visit those because they had to make their Christianity complete by visiting them. We must remember there are no relics that we can add to make our Christianity complete. You can be, we can be have Christ, Christianity to complete without having a fish on our car or having wearing a cross necklace or all the various different symbols we think we need to carry around. Christ obeyed on our behalf. Or, I don't know if this is still a thing, but 20 years ago it was a little rubber bracelet that have four letters on it. We, the forgetting of these truths over and over leads to the corruption of Christianity, leads to the corruption of the worship of Christ, which leads to a practical denial of the sufficiency of the one sacrifice of Christ. And it's not just the Roman Catholic Church. It happens within Protestantism and Evangelicalism and Reformed theology and practice. We forget these things. 
and we begin going off course. We must never leave these behind. And there's no more sacrifices. No more sacrifices. We've labeled the book of Hebrews as being called Jesus the greater than. We could rightly label it as, praise God, no more sacrifices. So brothers and sisters, in closing, God has truly done great things for us. As we read earlier in the service, in the reading of those Psalms, he has done great things for us. He has restored Zion. Zion being expanded, understanding being all the people of God who are in Christ Jesus. And he did it by means of this one who did God's will and was himself. He didn't bring a sacrifice. He was the sacrifice. And by his obedience, that sacrifice had its effect such that all who are in Christ Jesus not only have the removal of sin, but have the righteousness of Christ counted towards us. He secured it for us there around 2,000 years ago. And if this is not you, I urge you, run to the Savior. He is a sufficient sacrifice to remove from us our sins, to unite us to God, and give us access to Him. Let us pray. Our Father, thank you that this one who is our sufficient sacrifice lived and died for us. This one who obeyed, who fulfilled a requirement to obey, obeyed on our behalf. So that when he cried out for deliverance, he was heard and he rose from the dead. And because he died and he rose from the dead, so we have died to our sin. And we have risen to new life. And we will finally, once and for all, die to all the pangs that remain. And will truly rise. For death shall not hold us. And we pray, our Father, that you would sink these truths deep within our hearts. That we might cherish them. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.